Good evening. It's very good to be back with you all. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn to the book of First Chronicles, the first chapter, First um, Chronicles chapter 1, and please stand while you're finding that. We'll be reading from verses 35 through 54. It comes after the book of Kings, if you're having some trouble finding it. Uh, Samuel, Kings, and then Chronicles. First Chronicles, chapter 1, verse 35 to 54. Hear the word of our God. The sons of Esau, Eliphaz, Reuel, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah, the sons of Eliphaz, Temen, Omar, Zepho, Gatan, Kenaz, and of Timnah, Amalek, the sons of Reuel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah, the sons of Seir, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan, the sons of Lotan, Hori, and Heman, and Lotan's sister was Timnah, the sons of Shobal, Alvan, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam, the sons of Zibion, Aya, and Anna, the sons of Anna, Dishon, the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Karan, the sons of Azer, Bilhan, Zavan, and Achan, the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the people of Israel. Bela, the son of Beor, the name of his city being Dinhabah. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah, of Basra reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samla of Masrecha reigned in his place. Samla died, and Sha'al of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Sha'al died, and Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pi. And his wife's name was Mahetabel, the daughter of Matrid, the daughter of Mezahab, and Hadad died. The chiefs of Edom were chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jetheth, Aholibama, Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Teman, Mibzar, Magdiel, and it Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom. This is God's holy word. Let us go to the Lord in prayer that he might bless it. Our great God and King, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you've given us the scriptures in which we find life. 
I ask that you'd be with us this evening, that you would illumine the word to reach our hearts, that we would apply it to our lives, that you would be with us this evening as you've promised to meet with your people and to use your word. O God and King, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. James Farmer. James Farmer was a Glasgow-born man, and he immigrated into the United States in 1922. He immigrated through Ellis Island, and he brought with him his wife, Lena, and his two sons, Duncan and James. And as he arrived to Ellis Island at that time, you needed someone to sponsor you to get into the United States. And his brother, William, who had been here years prior, was supposed to be his sponsor. When he arrived to Ellis Island, William was nowhere to be found. And so he was allowed three days to go look for him. And on the second day, he found his brother, William, drunk on a porch step. But he was able to get into the United States. Now, it's most probable, if you don't know anything about me or my family, you've never heard the name James Farmer. He wasn't famous. He wasn't a man of significance. He was my great-great-grandfather. And if I saw his name on a genealogical list, it would tell me something. It would tell the story of my family. It would tell the story of how my family got here, of the context of some of our traditions, of some of the struggles that we've had. But for you, it most likely wouldn't tell you a whole lot if you just saw his name. That's a similar situation when we come to the names in genealogies throughout Scripture. Oftentimes, we're distanced, and so we have very a blurry idea. We might recognize some of the names here and there. But we have a blurry idea of, of what's going on. But as my wife and I have gotten married, my genealogy in some ways has become her genealogy. And so too, as the redeemed bride of Christ, these genealogies have significance for us, the church. In fact, this is not just as if you would come to my genealogy and see a name from my grandfather, and it would mean nothing to you. But these actually tell a story, a story of God's love and redemptive purposes that we can learn from and glean from. And so it was my hope this evening to share that story, to share a part of it in our chapter and our verses, 1 Chronicles 1, 35-54. In order to do this, there are some contextual matters that we need to go over briefly. The first is the situation and purpose of the book of Chronicles. In other words, why was it written and to whom was it written to? Well, it was written to a people who had just come back from exile. It was a small remnant who had entered the land, who were still under Persian rule and reign, and who were discouraged. You see hints of this in like the book of Haggai, where the people are discouraged at the temple, that it's not as great or glorious as it once was. And even the promise at the end of Haggai to make Zerubbabel the, the signet ring again, to establish God's king, because they were still under this rule and reign of Persia. They were asking where God has promised to restore us and our kingdom, yet we don't have a king and we don't have a temple. And so it was written to those returnees to give them hope, 
to give them hope of a glorious king and a glorious kingdom. But the second contextual matter that we need to address is what was the relationship between Edom and Israel? Edom is the nation that came from Esau, and in fact, that's the genealogy we just read. So what was their relationship? Well, if we go back to the 25th chapter of Genesis, verse 23, Rebekah has Esau and Jacob in her womb. And there's this struggle she starts to feel. She asks, what's going on? And God tells her, there are two nations in your womb. Two nations that will war with each other. And one will be stronger than the other, but the older, that is Esau, will serve the younger, that is Jacob. And this rivalry went throughout the history of Israel. We'll see some passages this evening where Edom opposes Israel, where Edom gains victory over Israel. Which raises a rather interesting question when we come to the genealogy. Why list somebody in a genealogy that's meant to give you hope, in a book that's meant to give you hope of a restored king and kingdom, why list somebody who's been such a thorn in your side? If, if someone were to encourage me or to encourage you, I'm sure you don't want to be reminded of a person that's caused you such grief throughout the years. Well, the reason I think the Edomite genealogy is included in First Chronicles is this. To show us that God's kingdom, ruled by God's appointed king, will have victory over its enemies. That is, these enemies that have gloated over the people of Israel when they were in exile, these enemies that gloat over us, the church today, will succumb and be subsumed under our great God and King Christ. It's to show us that God will triumph over the enemies of the church and to give us hope of a restored king and kingdom. It's to point us to keep our eyes towards heaven and our heavenly king and to endure well while we go through this pilgrim journey in our life today. And so I hope to show this by two points. And we're going to use verse 43 as kind of this hinge point. Because I think in verses 35 through 43, what you see is the rise of God's enemies, which will be our first point. And then in our second point, the ruin of God's enemies, that's verse 44 to 54. In order to expound these passages, I'll have to look at various other scriptures throughout the Bible. And so please don't feel like you have to keep up with me as I look through these passages, unless you're very good at sword drills. And so, let us go to our first point, the rise of God's enemies, verses 35 through 43. If we notice, there's a progression in these verses where verses 35 to 37 show the lineage of Esau, and then the lineage of Seir is given in verse 38 through 42, and then verse 43 comes the establishment of the kings of Esau, of Edom. And the chronicler, that is the author of Chronicles, we don't know who wrote it, so he's given the name chronicler. He's relying on a shortened, truncated form of the genealogy provided for us in Genesis chapter 36. So he leaves out some information, uh, assuming that his audience would have been familiar with this information. One such detail he leaves out is if you look in in verse 36, You see this little note, end of Timnah, Amalek, 
And there's a little note that says in, uh, in your Bible that says it lacks and of. Well, this is because what the chronicler is doing is he's just listing names. But if you go back to Genesis chapter 36, verse 12, we're told that um, Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, one of Esau's sons. And it is from Eliphaz and Timnah that you get Amalek. But then if we go even further in detail, it, it appears like it appears as though the, the lineage of Esau and then the lineage of Seir are completely separate. They seem to be two different lineages. But you have this little phrase in verse 39 that Lotan, uh, Timna was Lotan's sister. And so you have this link between the lineage of Seir and the lineage of Esau with, Lotan, or with Timna. And we know from Genesis 36.9 that Esau went to go dwell in the hill country of Seir. And so what we see is, if we know anything about the Genesis narratives, Esau made a practice of marrying foreign women, and it became a burden to Rebekah and to Isaac. And so Esau goes, and he searches foreign wives, and foreign wives for his sons, and they marry multiple women. And so one of the ways Esau is progressing his kingdom is through intermarriage with these foreign women, and multiple foreign women. But also, Esau expands his kingdom through military conquest. We get a glimpse of, of how big Esau's army is in Genesis 32.6. We're told that when Jacob went to go meet Esau, Esau was coming with 400 men. And this terrified Jacob. Why? Why would it terrify him? Because Jacob did not have enough men to combat 400 men. And we're further given evidence of Esau's large, expansive army in Deuteronomy 2, verse 12 and 22, where it records that the Edomites actually drove out the inhabitants of Seir. So they took their women, married them, and they kicked everybody else out. They were conquering and expanding through these, through these means. And as well... It's interesting. Numbers 20, verse 20 notes to us explicitly the power and size of Edom's army when they go and oppose Israel from passing through their land. Because Israel made a petition. They asked, we need to get to the promised land. Can we pass through your land? And they said no. And they met Israel with a great army. And so Israel turned away to find another route. And even our passage, we're shown Edom's powerful kingdom in verse 43, where they establish kings to reign over this kingdom. And in verse 46, we're told of Hadad, one of the kings of Edom, conquering Midian in the country of Moab. And the point is, Edom is expanding and growing fast and expanding through sinful means. They take foreign women, they have multiple wives, they conquer kingdoms and dispossess people out of greed to expand themselves. And this surely expedited their growth. This was not a godly means of growth. And this causes us to ask, how, how is it then that God's promised to Jacob that Esau and his nation would serve Jacob and his nation? How is that being fulfilled if Esau seems and his his kingdom seems so much larger than Jacob's. If, if Esau and Edom are progressing so much faster than Jacob. Well, the point was that Jacob and the people of Israel would learn to lean and trust on God's promise. 
that they would not look at the external circumstances, but they would endure and be faithful. And they would not expand through sinful means. How many times in the Old Testament does God tell Israel, don't marry foreign wives? Don't be like the other nations. Don't try to increase yourselves to your own merits. And so God is calling his people to endure, to be patient, to wait upon him. And as Edom grows through these sinful means, their hatred for Israel also grows. As we just mentioned, Edom opposed Israel from passing through their land. They said, don't come in or we're going we're to fight you and we're going to destroy you. And what do we see? We see this progression, this continuation that Esau rejected the promise. Esau rejected the blessing of his birthright and his people are following in tow. They are rejecting God's people. They're making themselves enemies of God's people. Instead of seeing that this is the Lord's chosen people and wanting to be on their side, they oppose them. And this hatred is only strengthened in the period where Israel ruled over Edom. In 2 Chronicles 21.8, we're told that Edom actually revolted against Israel when they were under subjugation to establish kings. This was God's judgment on the sin of Jehoram, king of Judah. That's how they got the upper hand. But you usually don't revolt against somebody that you're pleased to be under. So how much did they hate Edom? Uh, how much did they hate Israel? How much did they dis be, were they displeased to be under the shackles of Israel? And this is further emphasized when Israel goes into exile. In the book of Obadiah, which is a book dedicated to the judgment of Edom, Obadiah 1, verse 8 through 14, tells us that Edom actually delighted. They took pleasure when they saw God's people Israel in exile. When they saw God's people Israel being, um, being ransacked by Babylon. And we even have historical evidence that Edom participated in bringing Israel into exile. And we think about what the psalmist says in Psalm 137, verse 7. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Edom didn't just delight in Israel's downfall. Edom rejoiced. They took pleasure seeing Israel in this humbled, humbled situation. They desired to be over Israel. They desired to see Israel decimated. They desired for Israel to be no more. And instead of taking the judgment that fell upon Israel for their sin and thinking about what judgment would fall upon them, they rejoiced and they added to the judgment that would fall upon them by rejoicing. We're told in Lamentations chapter 4, verse 21 through 22, Rejoice and be glad, daughter Edom. You who live in the land of Uz, but to you also the cup will be passed. You will be drunk and stripped naked. Your punishment will end, O daughter Zion. He will not prolong your exile, but he will punish your sin, daughter Edom, and expose your wickedness. Lamentations is, is, is calling for Edom to enjoy the moment while it lasts, to enjoy seeing Israel decimated while it lasts because they're going to be judged. Israel will receive grace. They will come out of exile, but Edom's exile will not end. They will persist in the judgment of God. Instead 
of Edom hearing this and repenting, they actually continue to rejoice. And while Israel was in the exile for her sin, and Edom rejoiced over her, the true Israel, that is Christ, entered exile, not for his sin, but for our sin. That he might bring about the restoration, that he might begin to bring us out of exile. And when he does that, we see in Matthew 27, verse 40, that he is mocked as he's hanging upon the cross. His enemies mock and rejoice over him, saying, If you are the Son of God, save yourself. We see this pattern of those who reject the gospel, mocking and delighting over the humiliation of God's people and over the true Israel himself. And not only did the enemies, the physical enemies, those who rejected, there's even a sense where sin and death are, are humiliating Christ. They're mocking Christ in the sense that this is not the image of a victorious conqueror hanging there on a cross, bleeding and suffering. This is a lowly image. This is the image of a lowly sufferer. And while Christ endures the weight and curse of sin, the punishment of death, and the mocking of his enemies, that he might bring us out of it, and he receives the shame of a man punished for sin, he does it to bring us out. And in Christ's endurance of God's judgment, the enemies that mocked and chided him remind us of Psalm 2, verse 1 through 3, where we're told, Why do the nations plot in vain? And why do the kingdoms rage against the Lord's anointed? As the Israel of old and judged her for judgment for her sin was mocked and gloated over, the true Israel endured the judgment for our sin and was mocked and gloated over. But we, church, aren't we not also exiles? First Peter one, chapter verse one tells us, calls the church the elect exiles. And we are not in exile for our sin, but we're in exile as Christ is bringing about the restoration. And as elect exiles, as those united to Christ, who's bringing about this restoration, who's bringing us to the completion of his kingdom, we have to endure the mocking of his enemies. That's the rejection of those who hate the gospel. That's the persecution that comes with calling upon the name of Christ. That's struggling with our remnants of sin and even feeling the sting of death. And so what are we called to do as we are in this period of exile awaiting the confirmation and consummation of the kingdom? Endure. Suffer well. Struggle with your sin that you might overcome. Endure the persecution and mocking well that you might be a reflection of Christ to these enemies. Endure and rejoice in death that it brings you into glory with your Savior. John Chrysostom, he was a 4th century church uh, theologian. And he was bishop in Constantinople. And there's this account. He was preaching against Empress Eudokia. And he was preaching against her, and she did not find this pleasurable, as you could imagine. Nobody likes to have someone preach against them. And so she summons him. She summons him and says, Stop preaching against me, or I'm going to kill you. 
And he says, kill me, for that only brings me into the presence of my king. He says, fine, fine, fine. I'm going to kill all your friends. And he says, well, I have a friend who sticks closer who will never leave me in the Holy Spirit. He says, okay, okay. Then I'm going to take everything you have. And he says, well, I have treasures in heaven that you cannot take away. And this razzled her so that she went back to her council and said, I don't know what to do to this man. None of my threats are working. You see, church, when you endure well, when you suffer well, this is actually a testimony to the world. This is actually something that the world sees, and even if they don't respond to it, they inquire about. Why is this person so happy through the tears of sorrow? Why is this person rejoicing in this God when everything's falling apart around them? Why is this person still striving to conquer their sin when day after day they find themselves victim to it? This is a testimony to the world. And so we are to endure. We are to endure like our God and King Christ who endured the cross and the shame on our behalf. And now we are to do it on His behalf because He has begun this restoration. But we're not to endure for the sake of endurance. We're not to just grit and bear it and white-knuckle it. But we have a secured hope that is our reason to endure. That is our second point this evening. The ruin of God's enemies in verses 44 through 54. As we turn to the remaining names in the king list, it points to the impermanence of Edom's kingdom. And it does so in three ways. First, the refrain is, the kings died. You see it time and time again. Bela, the son of Beor, Bela died. Jobab, the son of Zerah, Jobab died. And all throughout the king list, death, 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 death. And not only that, the next king has no paternal relation to the, to the succeeding king. In other words, this, this is a hodgepodge kingdom. This is not a dynasty that's being established. This is not a strong lineage of kings who would rule and conquer. This is, this king died, and then this other guy rose up and came and took his place. And then that king died, and another man rose up and took his place. The second is you get this little phrase. Now, if you ever find yourself reading genealogies, which isn't very often, but if you do, pay attention to the little kind of turns of phrases, because those are very important. You have this phrase, these were the kings of Edom before there was a king in Israel. This is hinting at the impermanence of Edom's kingship because under the kingship of Israel, they would be subdued. And lastly, you go from a king list to a tribal chief list. In other words, Edom's kingdom was downgraded from a kingdom to just a hodgepodge of these territories that they inhabited. And one thing to note about this is you might see some of the names that were read in this genealogy repeated in the, the uh, chief tribal chief list. And there are two kind of explanations. It's not quite sure, but this is either just different people with the same name, or this could be territories and territorial demarcations. Sometimes uh, the names of people became associated with 
uh, the territories that they inhabited. But either way, the point is they're dispersed and in various territories. They're not a unified kingdom. And the book of Chronicles gives us uh, an account of David subjugating Edom to Israel in 1 Chronicles 18, verses 2 through 3. All the enemies of God were put under David's feet. And in 2 Chronicles 20, verses 20 through 30, we're told that Jehoshaphat squashed uh, the first revolt of Edom. But even when Edom did gain victory and get the upper hand and revolted and established a king, in 2 Chronicles 21, 6 through 10, God tells his people, I will not abandon the house of David. I will not destroy the house of David, giving hope that though it seems like Israel's enemies are getting the upper hand, God will establish his king. God will have victory. In other words, though Edom may have a momentary victory over God's people, they will not ultimately prevail. God's king will reign, his kingdom will be established, and his enemies will be subdued. This is even evidenced in the fact that Judah is the next genealogical list in the book of Chronicles, which is interesting because Reuben is the firstborn son. So why would you not list the firstborn son? Well, it's because in Judah comes the lineage of kings. It is from the tribe of Judah that God will establish his king, that God will establish David and all successive other kings. And even in the psalm that we read earlier, Psalm 2, where the nations mocked, where the nations revolted against God's king, verses 6 through 9 tell us that the God-ordained king will make his enemies a footstool, though for a moment they will rule, seem to have the victory. God will establish his king. He will subject them to this king. And Isaiah 11, verses 10 through 14, is, is a beautiful picture, a beautiful promise of this. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. And that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people of the east. They will subdue Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. It is rather interesting that the Gospel of Matthew opens his book with a genealogy to show that Christ Jesus is the true Davidic king, the true king from the line of Judah, the one who would fulfill all these promises. And when the day that the Lord comes, this root of Jesse will bring to completion the kingdom and the restoration that he's begun when he ascended, or when he was incarnate and suffered. He will gather us, his church, to himself, and he will defeat all our enemies. The text that I read from Lamentations earlier, it mentions Judah's punishments for a time, but Edom's day of reckoning will not end. 
Our exiled church is only for a time. It's for a brief moment. But the judgment that God will bring to the enemies of the church will not cease. Ezekiel 25 verses 12 through 14 tells that because Edom took its stand against God's people and took revenge on them, the Lord will judge Edom severely. See, those opposed to the church, those who mock us, who who revile us, that day will end. We no longer will have to suffer the reproach, the reproach that they throw upon us because we claim the name of Christ. And this Davidic ruler that is Christ, who endured humiliation, has been exalted above all things. It's interesting, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, when answering the question of how doth Christ executeth the office of a king, one of the scripture proves is 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 26, which is, for as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You see, in Christ's resurrection, he is vindicated as this king. He is vindicated as the messianic king of Psalm 2 who undergoed this brief period of humiliation. And he's established at the right hand of God the Father. The enemies of sin and death were defeated at Christ's death and resurrection, but they've been given a limited reign. The beginning of a limited reign so that Christ might gather in his people, those who have not yet professed the name of Christ. This rule of sin and death and the mocking of God's, uh, of God's enemies on the church will end when Christ returns to actually vindicate his people by their resurrection with him. We, the church, are Christ's cherished possession whom he has bought with his blood. And at the last judgment, all our enemies will be defeated once for all. There will be no more suffering, no more sin to wrestle with, no more death and the sting of death to feel. We'll be in our glory with our great God and King. We, beloved, are united to this resurrection of Christ. We're told this in Colossians 3, verse 1, where it says, Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And verse 4 tells us that when Christ, who is our life, appears, we will too appear with him. That glorious hope that we will appear with Christ, that is the hope during our exile here, that we cling to, that Christ is king and he rules and he will vindicate his people. And our king, when he returns, Revelation 21, 4, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And this comfort comes. It comes after the victorious subduing once and for all of the enemies of Christ, as we read in Revelation 19, 15 through 16. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the hope we cling to 
as those who endure, as those who go through this pilgrim journey and still struggle with sin and still see the sting of death and still endure the mocking and the reviling that is found for claiming the name of Christ. And that mocking and reviling will one day end when we're raised with him in glory. And in this, we're taught to rest and lean and hope and cling to God's promise as Israel was to rest and lean and hope and cling to God's promise when they were made low, when they endured suffering and exile. Christ will appear as righteous judge and he will destroy all the rulers and forces in the world that oppose him, that oppose his church. As a father who loves and cares for his children, who is rightfully angered when his child is bullied, will come and tenderly bring us into his presence. Christian, know that as you suffer, whether it's the reproach of the world, whether it's you struggle with your sin, whether it's you're enduring some sort of physical suffering, your God and King sees it, and he cares. He's not absent in it. But he asks you, endure, wait, because I'm coming and I'm using your suffering. This, is not for, this isn't for nothing. There's suffering in this world of sin. It's just what it's like to live in a sinful world. But there's purpose in the suffering of a Christian. It means something because God our King will make it mean something. So suffer well, dear Christian, the reproach of this world, because your king sees it. Suffer well, beloved, the afflictions of death and sorrow, because our God cares for you and promises a heavenly kingdom. Struggle and strive against your sin, because our God promises you a resurrected body that will no longer be tainted with sin. My great-grandfather he immigrated to the United States. And when he was on the cusp of fulfilling all his hopes and dreams, there's a question whether it would be fulfilled. So often we, the church, can feel this way. We've received the promises of Christ. We've reached the shores of the church. But we see all the affliction and suffering that befalls the church. We see it in our own lives, we see it in the lives of others, and we wonder, will this be remedied? Will this, will this be overcome? But unlike my grandfather, who didn't know how the situation would turn out, we have a glorious hope and promise that our king will make things right. And when he does, no longer will we be a pilgrim people following a pilgrim king, but we will be a triumphant people, dwelling with our triumphant King in glory. Let us pray. Our great God and King, how you are so gracious to us, how you bring us into this hope and promise of life with you, that you have brought us into your kingdom and that you are ushering it in. And there comes a day that you will confirm that kingdom. I pray as we go along this pilgrim journey, even this week, that would be our hope, that our minds and hearts would be set on those things that are above and not on the earthly things here. I pray these things in Christ's holy and precious name.
Amen.